the thing that kept popping up is all the trash. I couldn't believe that I was seeing these natural historical places that are very beautiful, but full of these shiny plastics everywhere. And there was no connection that if you throw something out the window, it goes to this place you're having a picnic. Hi everyone, it's Ninorta bringing you episode 171 of the Assyrian podcast with Maria Nissan. Today's guest goes above and beyond in the environmental world. She's born in the U.S. and is currently residing in Amman, Jordan. Maria's passions in art and the environment merge together as she turns Jordan's plastic waste into art. Maria has been featured in numerous media outlets and is known as the Assyrian environmental artist. In this episode, you'll hear Maria talk about her college years in Italy, art therapy in Greece, her life in Jordan, and her creativity behind the environmental art installations that she's created. We also talk about Maria's goals in reaching hearts and minds by transforming trash into art in a way that challenges our consumers' behavior and the waste that we generate. One of Maria's mottos is, plastic will live forever. We won't. Before we begin, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you're listening. Also, if you know someone who should be a guest on the podcast or even a host in your country, please reach out to us. You can find out more information on our website. This episode is sponsored by the Ushana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. If you're considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California, John and Rita are available to make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Ushanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theushanapartners.com. And now, here is Maria Nissan. Maria, thank you so, so much for joining us on the Assyrian podcast. I'm so happy we get to sit down and um, have a conversation. Me as well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, uh, looking really forward to finding out more information. Yeah, well, we're here. We're here to find out more about you. Um, <laughs> and this topic really, really kind of resonated, not just with me, but I think it's really important to talk about your work and what you do. So why don't we start off with you telling us about your background and upbringing? I come from Assyrian parents, my mom and dad, and uh, completely traditional. They even had an arranged marriage. And they uh, were married in America, in California. And that is where I was born. And first generation in the States. So growing up, I learned uh, Chaldean very fluently, and I speak Assyrian, like Surah, fluently mm. as well. And we also obviously um, were raised in the States. So there was always these issues of identity, where do we belong, and um, who are our people, and 
these kind of questions that you start asking a lot more as an adult and as a child, you try to cover up as much as possible because you want to fit in with your surroundings. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a, a clash growing up. I would ask my mom not to speak in Sudith in front of my friends. I, I remember it was very strange not being able to do the things my friends were allowed to do that were American. Their parents were a lot more uh, lenient <laughs> with the rules yeah. and um, I mean, I, I remember growing up, I wasn't even able to shave until I was in high school. And you know, we're, we're hairy women, so that yeah. was not fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, now, now as an adult, I really value those things growing up and realized that it was part of the culture and tradition and wish that I hadn't have been so embarrassed. Mm -hmm. But there was also this deep lack of understanding because there was such trauma initiated in my parents' life growing up in Iraq as Assyrians, migrating to the States, not speaking the language, fleeing their homeland, and running away from everything they knew as home for survival mode. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't learn a lot from my parents growing up until I was in college. And I was getting my bachelor's degree in art education and a minor in painting and drawing for the University of Georgia. My parents got a divorce and my dad moved to Michigan, and like a lot of Chaldeans, and my mom moved to Georgia. And um, yeah, so not only were we being raised in America as Assyrians, but now my mom had taken us to the South, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but- um, Yeah, why, why Georgia? What was in Georgia that she was like, I'm going to Georgia? Yeah, so my aunt opened up a hotel there uh, a while back. She, her and her husband, and my mom wanted to be near family after the divorce, so she thought Georgia, that's where she, they went to high school. That's Super random. That's so cool. So I'm, I'm a hotelier, so I, yeah. <laughs> I work in the hospitality industry, so that's so awesome that, there's an, that an Assyrian woman opened up a hotel. That is amazing. Yeah, my you just made my day. <laughs> That's great. Nice. So yeah, um, my mom wanted to go back to Georgia. That's where mm -hmm. I, she got her high school degree after she came here. And I was being raised in Georgia. A lot of issues going on there as far as uh, not only being a minority in America, but now I'm in the South that is very known for being racist and having a lot of issues going on with people not of Caucasian color, mostly. So I didn't really fit into that dilemma either as well. Mm -hmm. Created a lot of issues in high school. So when I went to college and I was getting my art education degree, I was very interested in understanding what my background was. And because my parents rarely spoke of what happened in Iraq, or spoke of these issues that I know brings pain. I had to do a lot of research and I wanted to get into this idea of being out of my comfort zone and being out of America and trying to understand things better. So I started applying to get my master's degree in programs and I got accepted into Sachi. So I moved to Florence, Italy where I pursued my master's degree in fine arts. And when I moved to Italy, everything changed. I felt 
more at home than I did in the States. I, I don't know if you know many Italians, but their culture is very similar to uh, Iraqis in the way they move their hands and their communication and their overall just energy mm -hmm. is very flamboyant. There's a lot of uh, Middle Eastern type of res resemblances. Yeah. Yes, yeah. similarities. Um, so that was cool. And then I went to this thing called Middle East Now when I was getting my master's degree and it was a film festival mm -hmm. about Middle Eastern people. And I remember just being at awe because they had flown in all these people from Lebanon and Syria and Iraq to do this festival. And I was having so much conversations about how it was seeing these images and seeing these like traumatic events going on on a screen and knowing that this is something my family went through and being able to finally visualize it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had a lot of in-depth conversations with a lot of refugees and a lot of people that had immigrated from their homeland countries and from Arabic descent and Middle Eastern roots. And that's when I started diving into thesis work of scent. So I don't know how much your family cooks in the kitchen, but my mom, yeah. So all of my aunts, all my moms, uh, every time you come home, there's the smell that is very intense of seasoning and flavor and yeah. uh, enrichment in life. So I started doing large scale installations made out of home seasons. So I was using cumin, seven spices, uh, paprika, chili powder, all of the things that are like mixed together when you have dolma or kubba or um, I, I mean, anything that I can't think of right now, but. <laughs> So I started doing paintings with spices and the paintings grew and grew. And the more identity work I started diving into, the bigger the installation had turned into an actual room. So you would walk into the space and you walk into an installation that is complete seasonings and it's painting like, and it's powder and you are hit with the scent before you even come down the hallway because it just took up the entire building. Wow. And so um, it's an experience. You're not just going to see and visualize the art. You're going to smell and have that scent and aroma. Yeah, exactly. And I made a sound recording of uh, being in the kitchen, cooking these Middle Eastern foods and recording the sound we make while we're doing it. So there was a sound piece inside the installation that went in hand with the scent. And then you also have the visual component of these brown and yellow and, uh, and rich different colors on the walls. So amazing. It, just, it was a very interesting experience. And um, needless to say, the place smelled like me for a long time after I took it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I did another installation uh, where I merged two identities together because I was having a rough time trying to distinguish which part of me is the American that was raised in the States and then which part of me is actually have this um this embedded in my dna this Assyrian heritage and even though i don't completely understand it and i'm having issues getting grasp of the background and the heritage and the knowledge i still feel it so i created an installation where i parted the room it was completely covered in plastic and i parted it down the middle and one side i painted red white and blue and then the other side i painted black red and a green white so 
after I had finished painting both sides, the entire room was covered in plastic. There was a layer of tape that was there before I started the paint. So I removed the pieces of tape from each side and then I merged them onto the other side. So it became one being and one entity mm. to where there was no more uh, a torment of choosing sides and understandings that you walk into the space and through the symbolic colors of the flags, I've united these things together, which would be me in one, one being. So that was, um, those two installations really were the start of my Assyrian dive into creating art based on our heritage and culture. Mm -hmm. So those two installations were those in Florence? Yes, exactly. While I was getting my master's. So okay. the first year of my master's degree is when I started doing my thesis project on Syrian identity, cultural uh, belongings, and um, sensorial installations. Got so it. yeah, all of these pieces had some component of visual components and then also a sound that was inside the space or obviously a scent mm -hmm. that was incorporated. Wow. And that title of the installation was called My Mother Was My First Country, because I thought that would be fitting. And um, I forgot to mention the installation of scent was called My Fragrance Since Birth. Wow. So these are kind of like home identity nostalgic uh, themes that I'm working with. I love that. That's amazing. Um, so after Florence, I got my master's degree. I finished my thesis work. I merged a lot of different installations, working with Assyrian backgrounds. Those were just two examples I did while I was there. I really wanted to start art therapy. And I was really trying to bring out those types of conversations with my parents and my aunts and my uncles of what was going on and why they um, fled and how it felt and uh, all of these difficult topics that no one wanted to discuss. and. I knew that there was layers and layers of trauma that had just been tumbled on and tumbled on. And there was no conversation. There was no like emotional release that was happening. They, I, I mean, I can't even imagine how they did it, but they did it and then they raised children and they just swallowed it all and you can feel the tension. So yeah. I really wanted to help people that were dealing with these issues of, um, moving from their homeland countries to a place that is foreign to them because of survival mode and because their home country is no longer fit and safe for them to be. So I started an art therapy program for refugees and um, I decided to go to Greece because Greece is the first country they go to when they leave Syria mm -hmm. and Iraq. It's uh, kind of like the stop before they get to the mm -hmm. European countries they want to live in. So I moved to Athens, Greece, and I started an art therapy program for refugees working there with different minorities of people, um, using art as a medium for them to express the emotional trauma that was going on with them without having to use language or words or feeling completely vulnerable because there's still this sense of mystery in what they were drawing and what they were writing mm. that didn't completely speak uh, obvious to me, but I could tell that they were working through something. So I wanted to give them the channel and the medium to get through that so they didn't have to go through what my family has gone through that I saw firsthand. 
So I was working with um, LGB community people. I was working with Iraqi young adult girls who weren't even speaking English. They came to Greece. They weren't speaking Greek. They were also teenage girls. So that's a very difficult time in anyone's life, let alone um, Iraqi <laughs> people. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had their brothers and their uncles and their fathers, and they were living in squats and dealing with these types of things that no, no teenager, no child should ever have to endure, let alone huge amount of people coming in at once. And um, so I worked with a lot of different groups. I worked with single adult men because uh, it's a minority. People don't actually realize how often the man will leave first the country that is being bombed and interrogated. And then he'll bring the family. But while he has gone and he's trying to find security and find job and all of these things, he is at the bottom of the ranking because he doesn't have children and he doesn't have a wife. So they have the least amount of resources offered to them. So I was doing a lot of art therapy with them. And I was uh, working on that for a year with different NGOs in the area and giving workshops and trainings and lectures and talks and just a safe space for refugees to come and feel like they can express what they're feeling without anyone being there to have a conversation with. Mm. I, sometimes I would just sit there, I would light a candle, I would have incense, I would play classical music without words. There was no issues with language barrier because it wasn't a requirement. I would create the setting and give them the opportunity to deal with it in a positive way or deal with it at least in a way that doesn't create more harm. Yeah. So um, that was after Italy. Mm -hmm. And while I was in Greece, I was doing some installations, some of my own artworks as well, um, creating large scale installations. For refugees, I would go to the squats and go to the squares and I, I would see a lot of things happening that children shouldn't be, I mean, it shouldn't be happening, but the kids were witnessing a lot of things that shouldn't have been taking place. The children who were ripped apart from their identity of home and security that are now in Greece, we're seeing a lot of sexual exchanges, prostitution, drug deals, um, people shooting up heroin in the squats. And it really was so heavy on me. And I would see all this plastic trash because around the squat was cafes that had uh, plastic coffee cups. Mm -hmm. So I got the kids together and we created this like playground area out of plastic materials that would actually block them from these visual sites that needed to not be seen and also give them something to interact with and build and create. So that was very rewarding as well. Wow, that's very, very cool. So is that, so right now you're, you're living in Jordan? Yes, so um, I stayed in Greece for a year, year and a half, but after some time I really um, needed to get away. I needed to take a break and um, try and just, live because after dealing with such and as great as it was working with refugees and working with the emotional trauma it felt very heavy and it got to a point where i myself was having a lot of um emotional issues it would feel like i would absorb a lot so i, I needed to just break away and find myself again as well 
and I decided to go to the Middle East. So I'm going closer and closer to this journey. Um, and I wanted to do some research on places to go. I was too scared to go to Iraq, still very scared of that. So I wanted, I applied to do projects in Lebanon and in Jordan. And I had a friend in Jordan who I went to art school with, and he always said, like, come visit, Yolo, like, come, we'll hang out. And it's always good to travel in a place you know a person, even if it's just one. So I came and instantly just felt this type of uh, comfort and familiarity, because even though Jordanians aren't Assyrians, they're the closest thing besides my family I've encountered and we're bordering countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, Iraq is like a four hour drive from here. So it was a lot closer than I got when I was in Greece or Italy. And the people were very welcoming and very nice. But the thing that kept popping up is all the trash. I couldn't believe that I was seeing these natural historical places that are very beautiful but full of these shiny plastics everywhere. And there was no connection that if you throw something out the window, it goes to this place you're having a picnic. So I would see locals having picnics and they're like surrounded by trash everywhere. And it just didn't make sense. So I started doing these projects about plastic waste. And the more mm. I started doing these projects and the more research I started doing, the quicker it was for me to really grasp on a sense of what is happening to our world and what is going on in our environment and how can I be a vessel to create change mm -hmm. and implement what needs to happen in order for us as not only Assyrian, Arabic, Middle Eastern people, but as, as a whole, because we we need to stop otherwise we're gonna we're destroying our planet we're destroying everything we say we love and we have to prioritize so i started building these large-scale installations out of plastic waste and it was similar to what i was doing in greece and in italy um, with the installations on large scale sensorial but there was a new component here which was the ergila pipes mm. and uh I don't know how familiar your family uh, is with this, but my uncles used to always just sit in this basement. We would have like family get togethers and all the men would be down in the basement and they're smoking ergila. And mm -hmm. you go down there as a kid and you're like, oh, let me just like have a little sip and see what happens. And you feel really cool. I mean, you're smoking, it's horrible. But um, you know, as a kid, it's like a sneaky thing to do. <laughs> So coming to Jordan and seeing all these cafes that are using single-use plastics for their uh, shisha places, I was like, oh, just give it to me. I'll figure out what to do with it, but we can't throw that away. Mm -hmm. um, and then I found out that each Ergila cafe is using 200 plastic pipes per day that is not being recycled, that is being thrown away. And there's thousands of shisha places in Amman. So my mind just like started going how, how calculating all of that <laughs> yeah i'm doing the numbers and i'm like there's no way no way that no one is paying attention to this so i started building these huge installations out of this everyday material such as the ergila pipes and then the water bottles because also there's water scarcity in jordan and there's not like a filter system implemented in the pipes 
So people are always drinking water out of the bottles. And we don't have like a, a bring your own bottle, fill it from the tap type of thing. Everyone's drinking out of plastic. So I started working with these specific materials as a way to relate to everyone in Jordan that if they interact with the public art, speak, uh, art space, they will see that this is something they use every day and it's larger than life. And mm -hmm. hopefully that will shift a perspective very quickly of what is happening. Um, so I've been here three and a half years <laughs> doing this type of work. And um, while I was there, I also started diving back into our women. Um, so my work always has this like underlying thing with feminism and how we use our hands and things we do in the household. So like with cooking and sewing and ironing. So these mm -hmm. everyday like woman chores that growing up was supposed to be what our moms did mm -hmm. um, has now started to shift. And I, while it's not shifting completely as we would like, our women are strong female leaders and are they have these traits that I've never seen in another culture. I've been living abroad for, uh, I'm going on seven or eight years now. Mm -hmm. And I've traveled all over the States. I used to be a flight attendant and I've never seen any women like our women and these strong leaders needed representation. So I started doing these um, paintings and drawings and incorporating our Syrian heritage into these feminist series that I created um, where they have the jewelry that is similar and the shapes that go within in it and the headpieces and the elegance and delicacy that is incorporated and how intimate and intense they feel, but this type of power that is involved with it. Mm. And I did these on plastic bag drawings. And um, even though you can't see it in the, the mm -hmm. podcast, <laughs> so basically they're layered plastic bags that I go and collect from the streets in Amman and then I do these drawings of our women. And um, even though it can never completely be what they are, I try really hard to resemble and give affirmation to our Assyrian women through mm. different forms. The jewelry, the shapes, even the bright colors of the fabrics that our women wear and try to find a way to incorporate that and mm -hmm. to also raise awareness about how empowering our women are and mm -hmm. how they actually are the leaders of our households, how they are the rock and the glue for every family. And so it's in our, I've inherited that. That's amazing. I feel special just knowing that that's part of me and that I can give that trait to the future generations and that we speak a language that dates back to the beginning of time. And, um, I mean, there's never going to be enough things I could do to give a justification, but I've tried to use art as a medium, as a way to express that. Yeah, and you're using plastics as your canvas. Yes. So, so you're tying in two things that you're very passionate about. And I think they go together. So there's this idea of ecology. And ecology begins with fertility, and women are the ones who give life and give birth. So if we're using this material that is destroying our planet, then what is going to be left for our future generations? And mm. I mean, we call Earth Mother Earth for a reason. 
is because there's this nurturement that's involved in beings and women carry that gene. So I, I feel like they go really um, well together. Mm -hmm. You're known as the Assyrian environmental artist. What does that mean to you? Am I? That's good to know. Yeah. According to Google. Oh, that's great. Um, I mean, it makes me very proud. I, I'm still in a, a phase of not knowing if people know who I am or <laughs> if I'll ever be at the place I want to be. But I mean, hearing that just makes my day. That's, that's such an uh, heightening title. I'm very pleased to hear that. I mean, I've always wanted to give a voice to our Assyrian culture and our women and to be able to help raise awareness about our minority and to have everyone take recognition of our people. Um, so even having that in the title of Assyrian environmental artist, it's, I mean, it's, it's been a journey and it hasn't always been easy. Even here, people think I'm homeless most of the time because I'm collecting trash and, uh, I get stares. It's not easy being a female in the Middle East still, no matter if we're in 2022 or not. So to hear that that's my title and that's what I'm known for, it just gives affirmation to the work I'm doing and gives me motivation and encouragement and support to know that it is being recognized. And even though I'm not reaching everyone I encounter on the streets, when I ask for their plastic trash, I see them throw away. Um, there is some type of uh, legacy. There is some type of a feeling attached to that mm -hmm. and humbleness that's involved. And I mean, I'm just very thankful. Yeah. And grateful. What made you want to get into art? I mean, you mentioned you were a flight attendant before. Have you always been intrigued in art since you were a young child? No, I was always creative. Um, so my parents used to hate my bedroom. There were always these random creations all over the room and holes in the wall and paint everywhere. But I didn't realize I was an artist. I mean, kids are just creative naturally. And uh, when I was a flight attendant, I was at a point where I wanted to settle down and get a degree. So I went back to school, I gave up being a flight attendant and I just applied for a bunch of fun classes. I think I was 25 years old and it was the first art class I had taken since elementary school. So I took drawing and pottery and ballet and dance and I fell in love with pottery. And by the end of the semester, my professor sat me down and said, you need to be an artist. You need to change your major. And I thought he was joking. I was like, no, I don't think so. I mean, this has been fun, but uh, I'm just going <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> so then he set up another meeting with me and he put, I was like, also, I, I was very insecure. I was like, look at her piece. Do you see what she's doing over here? I'm nothing compared to this girl. Or like, I mean, it's natural that we do the comparison. So then he did another meeting with me. And again, he tried to convince me to change my major to be an artist. And he showed me my first art piece that I created in the class and my last art piece and everything in between. And I could see the progression. And he said, you know, being an artist isn't about something that you're making and it's great. It's about how much progression you make during a period of time and how much effort and energy you put into that. 
And I mean, my first art piece was like this thing that was broken. It was cracked. I wouldn't have shown it to anyone. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was in the back. I didn't even know if you could find it. Um, and it, even my last art piece, I wasn't like, super enthused about. But once I saw it in a line, I was like, oh, maybe this is something I could do. And ever since then, it was the only thing I was, I felt a shift. Like I was excited about classes. I was excited about homework. I was killing it in, uh, you know, coming up with creative things and creative concepts. And it just, it just worked. And nothing else had ever worked up until that point. Well, that's amazing. Thank you. I mean, you, you also mentioned about like what kind of started your environmental art journey when you were with the kids and, and turning uh, like a park, you know, pieces that you had found into a park. Was that your like pivotal point of knowing that this is what you wanted to do in terms of environmental art? It kind of happened during my thesis project. So with the project I was doing with the installations of um, Assyrian cultural identity and feminism, after each installation, I would take it down and I didn't want to throw it away. And then my last year getting my master's degree, I strictly started working with waste um, with the same things, but uh, collecting food items. Like I would go to the Italian coffee shops and collect food grains after they would make the coffee. And I would create sculptures from the coffee grains and filters. And uh, when students would leave from the study abroad program, I was collecting fabrics and making huge rooms. So the idea of waste uh, started when I was in Italy. It didn't fully get through fruitful until uh, I guess Greece, but mm -hmm. I was creating this book at the end of my master's thesis project and it was a chapters of life book and it was recycled from every installation and project I had done during my two and a half years in Florence. And I guess that was my first huge environmental piece mm -hmm. that was able to incorporate all of them. And then it, mm -hmm. it just kept going. The more I started researching and the more I started observing I never was able to steer away from it. And I just kept, I just kept thinking like, where does all the trash go? What do we do with this food after we're done? Or what do we do with these clothes that don't work? And it just didn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was never able to do that. Yeah, but you're creating something from, from it. And a lot of us will like, you, like you said, like throw away those um, plastic, hookah you know uh, pieces or just anything in general we just throw it out and we don't think about what is the next step what will happen next even with clothes like you mentioned we just you know throw it away there's a really uh, important quote that i like to use when we talk about like throwing things away and mm. that is we don't actually ever throw things away because it always comes back to us one way or another and I, i've always tried to implement that thought process because it just goes somewhere. It goes to our landfills, it goes to our oceans, it goes into our fish. And we have this idea that once it's visually not within our frame, it's trashed and it's away. It's no longer here, but it's back into our system. Sorry. I, I love that. Okay. <laughs> Which piece that you've created means the most to you? Okay, so I have the drawing series of Assyrian women Mm -hmm. that 
definitely felt like um, the type of women. I mean, there was definitely that type of emotional connection while I was making every line and every shape and focusing on the eyes and going back and saying, this isn't the way they look like I need to fix this, cutting the plastic out, redoing, trying to give each structure and each component the rightful amount of time and precision it needed. But it was also very challenging because of that same reason. I never felt like they were good enough. Um, but there's a type of love that's endured in that because I, I mean, the series is named after my khaltis, my aunts. So I have my mom and then I have my four aunts. I mean, my three aunts that are involved on my mother's side and in my head within the next year, I'll have my dad's side of aunts included. Cause you know, we have big families. So. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that one's the most important and the most like, um, time, time and energy and love. But I also can't disregard the installation I created using the sense of my childhood and the sense mm -hmm. of Assyrian uh, food, because that was at a time I was in Italy, far away from my family, far away from my friends, feeling alone and wanting something to remember who I am. And that installation really was a, a way to instantly bring back those types of memories and feel like there was not so far away and not so distant connection. Um, mm -hmm. So that got me through a very difficult time. Yeah, so it's hard to choose. I guess one yeah. installation, one painting. Yeah, <laughs> that works. <laughs> At what point did it like click for you to say, I could turn plastic or these recycled materials into art? I don't think there was ever really a point. There was more of a progression. I would get super frustrated. Um, plastic's an incredibly difficult material to work with. It looks flimsy, but I've never had such a struggle trying to find adhesives and paints that work and how to cut things without having blisters all over my fingers. And I mean, it's still a struggle. We, we literally own 10 different scissors because it's trial and error. And after a while, the scissors just stop working. And we have to guess because they don't have the same brands here. So, I mean, I, I never really figure it out. I'm always just like, well, we'll give it a shot. I mean, let's see what happens. It's trash. I'm surrounded by it. I'm not running low on materials. Um, so, yeah, it's been a progression. The first couple of years were horrible. I had so many burns all over my arms. I was getting cut left and right. I was just like, oh, just I can't handle this material. And I would steer away from it. I'd be like, you know what? Paper is so much easier. They sell all that stuff in one store. I can just pick it all up. I can come home, pen to paper. I got a drawing in two days. <laughs> um, but then I would always go back, you know? There's no, there's no learning in doing something you're used to and you know. And that's mm -hmm. the thing about plastic is... There's so many different forms and numbers and kinds and materials that I'm always learning. I'm always like trying to figure it out. And if I figure something out really, really well, then um, I move on to the next because there's no shortage of material and there's a huge message that needs to be involved. So I just try and manipulate it and find different ways. And I mean, sometimes it's cool and sometimes it's horrible and that just stays in a bag until I figure out something else to do with it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you mentioned that you're trying to like send a message. Have you been able to get through to anyone? Well, you just told me I'm called the Assyrian uh, environmentalist. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. <laughs> it seems like something's working, which is super cool. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's it's give and take. So some days I feel really great about what I'm doing. I get, you know, supporting messages from someone who stumbled across my Instagram page or someone's interested in purchasing my art. And uh, that's very rewarding because unfortunately, being an environmental artist as um as big as it sounds like I make the big box, uh, it is not sustainable for living in Gothof. Yeah. And it just, it's really nice because it's like, oh, I used to get paid doing art and now people are still paying me to do that with this material that's trash. So that is very rewarding because it also gives me extra time to be able to go and collect the trash because, you know, it's collecting. And then it's washing and drying and cutting and all of these things. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping my message gets across. I really work hard on social media, which is not my forte. Um, I've been, you know, trying to figure out what my hashtags are and my audience. And uh, it's not my thing, but I'm, I'm working on it. And hopefully the message of, you know, our people and our culture and our ancestral background and all of our heritage and enrichment and I mean we created life how how do people not know about us mm -hmm. we started we're the originals like so I I want to you know be out there and like tell people hey guys you know who I am you should figure it out uh but unfortunately people don't respond to that too well so I'm just usually hoping that I'm I'm letting people know not to use their trash correctly and yeah. if people are interested and they'll find out about me being Syrian. Yeah. Those kind of uh, things. So when, and this is something that like, I've always noticed, like I, I visited Cairo uh, before. And as you mentioned, like in Amman, you see trash in certain areas. And I've seen, I saw trash by the pyramids. I mean, these are historic landmarks and just those kind of things. And even here in Arizona with our, uh, our group that we have, we do a, quarterly street cleanup and it mm. just is mind-boggling as to why somebody would throw you know that piece of trash on the ground when there is a waste bin right there right there how do you feel about that oh all sorts of ways <laughs> all sorts of ways i've just enraged you um, <laughs> so i mean in the beginning, I would get furious, right? I would see people doing it from my balcony because we live in a pretty like uh, populated area where people are walking around. And I would go downstairs and I'd be like, there's the trash can. Why would you throw it down here? Or I would be that crazy woman shouting <laughs> from the balcony, pick up your trash there, go put it over there. This is our home. You know, this is our land. Mm -hmm. um, people didn't respond to that well either. And I don't really think it gave myself the correct image I wanted to portray as an environmentalist. So I found a different approach, which was doing research and trying to understand what it is that a person does before they reach the trash bin. Like, how many feet does it take before a person is going to throw the trash on the floor before finding a dumpster? What are the components that are going into this behavior? Because it's not just like this individual, I see it all the time here. 
And the more research I started doing, uh, like through the statistics and talking to green initiatives that are going on here, I've realized that there's three main pillars that are failing and having issues. One pillar is the education department. So it is not, I, I can't speak for Cairo, but in Jordan specifically, um, waste, man, uh, waste management, climate change, uh, trash, recycling, these types of things are not implemented in the curriculum. So it is not taught to them in school, public schools specifically. Private schools are a different story, but the majority of people here go to public schools. So education is lacking. And then we have waste management. And waste management is very sparse when it comes to places outside of the city of Amman. Um, and it's not as efficient as it is in Western countries, but in even Western countries it happens. So. As far as that goes, there's not really recycling facilities here. I create my art. We have like two places, but it requires a person to physically put their containers and things in their like car. And then they decide that they're gonna go drive to a place. So it's costing them money to go and recycle. And then they drop it off and then they drive home. So for a person who doesn't have education and also who doesn't even know how to sort. Like there's no trainings involved with this. So sorting your different types of waste is not very uh, common here. And then also if you wanna buy alternatives, it's very few and a lot more expensive. So people with an income of 400 US dollars a month surviving off that for a family are not gonna spend money trying to find something that's an alternative that is wrapped in eco-friendly paper or using beeswax instead of saran wrap. Mm. So there's these kinds of challenges that before I verbally say anything to a person, I always repeat the three in my head, right? Education, financial mm. issues and struggles. And then I will start a conversation. Mm. And I'm usually a lot more from an understanding type of, it's not an individual's fault, it's a system that we've all become accustomed to and we've all grown and part of and unfortunately we are the minority that's saying pick up your trash this isn't right and yelling at coca-cola for being number one pollutant plastic bottle and i mean these aren't like things that we brag about you know but i mean everyone drinks coke so what are you going to do mm -hmm. so i have a lot of different emotions mm -hmm. and i try to balance it and i try to go up to a person and first I don't I don't get defended I don't say like hey this is your trash there's a trash can there I'll say hey did you drop this like as mm -hmm. if it it was an accident then I'll pick it up and I'll say oh like I'll put that for you the trash is right over here and then I'll start walking and doing it and when they see this happen there's two things that take place usually and that is embarrassment oh I'm, I'm sorry like yeah I guess so and then they'll actually go take up their trash and sometimes even take the trash around the area I just picked up from and they'll go with me to throw it away, which I find is a lot more of uh, an impactful way mm -hmm. to relate to individuals instead of yelling at them from my balcony. Mm -hmm. so, Show them. Yeah, exactly. And, and I like just that. try and be mindful of what's happening in their world. Yeah, that's very true. So I was researching online about you and the work that you're that you're doing. Can you tell us about your Plastic Oceans project? Well, Plastic Oceans was a series of installations because okay. I just I couldn't find a better name for it. I was like, 
And each plastics oceans had a number in top. So each number was significant to the amount of plastic articles I was collecting for that specific installation. So it would be like uh, 1,222 plastic oceans or, you know, 2,085 plastic oceans. So that just continued and continued because I felt like it was such a, a good thing. People could understand just within the title that this is a number followed by plastic oceans and plastic oceans. So th there was no need to even like explain a lot of things, which is what you want when you're creating public art pieces, because a lot of people aren't going to stop and read things. Um, so that series was about creating large scale installations and having people understand that there are different things we can do with this trash and it doesn't need to go into our ocean. And then inside of these spaces, I was asked pretty often to go and do workshops or to go and give lectures. So I would come back, revisit the space after it's been built and give lectures and workshops about what it means, what we can do, offer alternatives and educational type of spin on it to let people know. But I found that the Plastic Ocean series was specifically impactful because it was in places that were visited pretty often by everyday people. I did plastic oceans on top of rooftops in the neighborhood. I did plastic oceans on the street. I did plastic oceans in cafes. I mean, I did different series of these in places where I was reaching a different demographic than the enriched hierarchy, artistic, art gallery goers type of people. So that was very nice for me because I was able to shed light to people that wouldn't really always be able to be exposed to those types of educational issues that were going on and also aware of what happens to this thing after we use it and how many of these we can use in a short period of time because I was collecting it from these places. I was collecting the trash specifically from that restaurant. So it wasn't something far away, like from down the road or down the street, it was site specific. Mm. So when people would like go uh, on Rainbow Street, which is where I was collecting it and see these installations, they would think, oh, that, that's here. And then they could see the trash on the floor, which it always is, there's always trash here. <laughs> and they could say like, oh, this connection. And there was no need for me to always be present and express that. So that was, that was a, a different type of engagement that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Is is microplastics J-O part of the Plastic Oceans? So Is microplastics there... Joe, everybody calls something Joe as a way to shorten Jordan for brands here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, microplastics Joe is its own thing. And it's it's the same idea, right? So I'm going, I'm collecting plastics from the Wadis, from the Dead Sea, from Wadi Ram, from Amman, different places, and bringing it home, washing it, drying it, getting the material prepped and ready to be created into something else. And then I take these plastic bags, so it's all single-use plastic bags for this product. And I create things that are affordable for people here that can go in the home and serve as function. So it's not so much an artistic gallery installation sensorial thing. It's something that people can afford that don't have a large income. 
and that they can readily see it's something that is functional and will live longer than the intention of a single-use plastic bag, which on average, a person uses five to 12 minutes a day. And then it lives 1,200 years, you know, 500 years, depending on the actual type of material. So with this, I braid and I pleats and I layer and create baskets. I create plant hangers. I make mats. I make rugs. I make coasters, different types of things that go into the home that also serves as a purpose. And it's, it's new. People, you know, when you think of plastic trash and then you think of a plant hanger, you're thinking it's going to be dirty. But it's new. It's clean. It's shiny. It's the way it yeah. was in the beginning. And it's going to live forever. And also, you're saving these plastic bags from actually going back into our ecosystem that's going to harm our plants and all of our life that's going to happen during and after our times. So with this, I just created a brand out of it to try and still implement the idea of raising awareness, but also telling people, like, I can teach you how to do this. I, I offered to give trainings and workshops. Mm -hmm. Uh, teaching women how to create these baskets. So hopefully that will get their momentum as well. Um, but it's fairly new. Me and my partner started this about six months ago. Mm -hmm. So we don't have that much reach on social media. But I mean, for instance, right now, he is doing a fair, uh, selling the products at a fair for a four-day eco-environmental festival that's happening with Impact Temple Mine. So mm -hmm. people are interested. Absolutely. And I mean, the more that you talk about it and bring it up, the more that people will be like, yeah, this is definitely something that I can, you know, that I can do as well. What inspires creating a certain piece of art? At what point do you get that kind of like click of like, okay, this is what I want to do with this particular item? Oh, I don't. <laughs> um, you just wing it. Yeah. So recently I was asked to create a series of flowers made out of plastic bags. And um, I remember three years ago, I used to try and figure out how to collage the plastic bags together to create this type of thing. But I also remember all the scars on my arms. And I was like, do I really want to revisit that? Because um, that was a painful time during my exploration. But then I said, okay, like, okay, I need to figure this out. This will be cool if I can do it. Um, so trial and error, honestly. And at some point it worked and I was super, super surprised and ec ecstatic and happy. Um, but I rarely go into a piece knowing exactly what it's gonna look like. And I have a very difficult time when I'm getting commissioned to do pieces or ask for project proposals. I try to be as vague as possible. I hate submitting pre-sketches of what something's supposed to look like. Um, so I try and do these little things so I don't have to get pinpointed to an idea. But I usually try and go with a theme and that theme tends to be something with life. So you have this idea of what it goes back into. So a growth of some sort. I like to incorporate sensorial things so something someone can walk through and interact with and touch. I, I try to find something that shows the texture of plastic. And I mean, most of the time I'm sitting in my living room and we're watching Netflix together 
and I'm just like braiding plastic. My living room is covered in plastic right now. I mean, you probably can't see it because we're doing a podcast, but um, mm-hmm. we, we just have plastic everywhere. And I guess when you're surrounded by it, you kind of just figure it out. Mm-hmm. You make something out of it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I've been doing this for quite some time now. I've been working with plastic specifically for five plus years. So wow. it's still a challenge. For sure, it's still a challenge. It's still a difficult material to use. But I've also created a community on social media that I get inspired by other plastic artists. So I've you know, messaged them and I'm like, hey, have you guys figured this one out? I tried spray painting and the spray paint's chipping off. You got any ideas for a solution? So when it comes to technicality, I have like some go-to artists that I message and ask. But mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, there's no no research books on how you're supposed to create art from plastic. Yeah, it's all trial and error. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I've talked to other artists as well that work with trash materials, and they say the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, we have jokes. We're like. Did you see my hand in this story? Did you see what happened to my finger? Did you see that cut? And uh, wow. I mean, it's a hard material. It really is. But I can imagine. I mean, you, you just said, yeah, but you just said, like, you can easily go to the store, get a, a, a canvas, a paper, and pencil, and draw your art mm-hmm. and paint, and you're done. But this is, you're actually having to work for getting the material that you need. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes I get custom orders and I'm like, I don't have that plastic color. And I'll get questions like, oh, well, can you come buy it? Or, you know, do you think you'll get it by May 31st? And I'm like, that's, I can try, like, I can try and look for purple plastic in the streets while I'm going for a walk. Um, But it doesn't, I'm not like easily accessible to these things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of black. I have a lot of white. It depends on what the store is providing in terms of plastic bags that day. Yeah, exactly. So the creations just also come from the resources I have. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think um, it would be different if you were um, living in, in like the U.S.? Like, would, would the art be different? I wonder that a lot. So there's this idea of us going back to the States because sometimes it is incredibly challenging here to try and talk about a conversation that most people I interact with have never had the conversation before. And at least in the States, I know in elementary school, we're learning about plastic, we're learning about waste and what happens. Um, But in Jordan, I don't have that luxury. So I do wonder, would it be convenient if I came back to the States? How would my art change based on the convenience? But also I'm limited to supplies here when it comes to paint materials. We don't have Amazon to where I can type in the specific thing that I need and it pops up and I get it delivered to my house. Mm-hmm. I have to go to these like market shops. This is the Middle East, right? So it's very rare I'm able to find exactly what I need without having to scavenge through 10 different corner art stationery stores before finding like, oh, this works and they have it. I need to stock up now or being able to dye things in the masses. So. These kind of things, I think, would be a lot more beneficial in the States mm. because I know I could find the mediums I really enjoy using very easily and I wouldn't have to spend so much time searching for that. But as far as the style goes, a lot of the similarities in my work are by my surroundings. So if I'm surrounded by an Arabic Middle Eastern culture, 
that is going to naturally come out in my work as opposed to America, where if I go to America, I think it'll get more Western. It'll become a little bit more tied to the culture and the things I'm seeing on the everyday experience. So absolutely, it will change in that sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, um, but I'm sure my artistic self 10 years from now remind me on Facebook. <laughs> Memories. Memories, yeah. <laughs> I get those Facebook memories now when I used to paint on murals. I was like, oh, that was nice. I used to just buy paint and put it on, <laughs> on a canvas. That was, that was a great day. <laughs> um, one of my co-hosts wanted to ask, what are some challenges to expressing yourself? Through the medium or in general as an artist? In general as an artist. Well, it's hard to know because I juggle a lot of different things and it depends on the day. So one problem is art piece takes time and my emotions go back and forth. So something I'm interested in today might not be so interesting in two months. So an issue I have is finishing out drawings, Mm. drawings specifically, because drawings require a different type of concentration and more focus as opposed to the installations and the baskets that are more rhythmic and therapeutic and I don't have to think about what I'm doing while I'm doing it. So interest is one. And uh, other challenges I face as an artist expressing myself would be figuring out what my theme is because there's so much stuff going on. I'm an Assyrian. I wanna talk about women's rights. I wanna talk about the shootings that are happening in America. I wanna talk about what's going on with abortion laws right now. I want to talk about the refugee crisis. I want to talk about what's going on with world hunger. I want to discuss our education, our healthcare, like those types of things. And I feel passionate about all of them. Luckily, environmentalism just falls right into all of those things. Um, And plastic is something I'm able to use as a medium to describe the environmental part, but to pick a theme is what becomes challenging, especially when things are happening. So Mm. for instance, right now, we just had the gun shootings in America and I'm talking to my partner and I'm like, you know what? I've never been to a country where there's gun shootings with children. I've never gone to a place and been in a country having conversations with Italians or Greeks or people from Spain or Jordan. And they're talking about a gun shooting. And it's just, and growing up in the States, it became normalized. I mean, it was something that, okay, there's another gun shooting. Which state is it in now? What happened? How many people died? And even though it's sad and it's horrible what's happening, I feel like you almost become desensitized in a way because it's not new information. And hearing about it while I'm in another country and having this perspective that this doesn't happen in other places. And we are supposed to be a Western, like, cultural role model for what's supposed to be improving in people's lives and progression and moving forward. And here we are, and we're having these abortion law issues, and we're having these issues that are going on with an 18-year-old being able to go up into a middle, an elementary school and just shoot up the place. And so that's my issue, right? Because these are all very important topics and being able to decide on how can I express these things simultaneously mm-hmm. i've yet to find that solution mm-hmm. what can we as assyrians do to help with the environment so 
what do you things. see what do you see is is like a challenge that us Assyrians have about I mean you're very passionate about the environment not a lot of people are so what can what can we do I have a really hard time with my family when it comes to environmental issues and plastic waste. And I still struggle with my mother asking her to stop putting plastic bags under the sink and to use the fabric bags I got her. So there's this type of, you know it's part of the culture, you know this is like, they're so hard-headed, our family is so hard-headed and like stubborn and okay, why are we drinking from the water bottle? It's plastic. You know what I do for a living, right? People can't see this. And this argument that happens behind closed doors. So I know exactly what you're referring to, but I think as the future generations of Assyrians, we can try and educate our parents and we can try and go ahead and implement those things like buying a straw that is not plastic, taking your fabric bags to the grocery store, just keeping it in your car and grabbing it when you're shopping with your mom or your dad or your aunt or, I mean, for your future generations, you can be the change. So even if we're not thinking about the past, even if not thinking about, you know, Khalti and Yimmi and uh, my grandmas, and I'm thinking about the future generations, you can start to be this educational component that shifts it for Assyrians. Because the great thing about us is we're the beginning. We are the heritage, we are the roots of civilization our language, our image, it's, it's all dating to the beginning of time. So why not have this minority of people that have created the type of world we live in be the one that shifts it to continue having a world we live in, that we're comfortable in? Because we are these amazing, smart people. And even as stubborn as our past generations are, we can be the ones that shift into the way we want things to be. It's no one's responsibility until it becomes everyone's problem. So we've had this legacy of creating amazing things happen in our lifetime. Amazing art, amazing architecture, great statues, divine food, beautiful fabrics and jewelry. We have strong households. We have this intelligent mind and we have it embedded in our blood and in our dna we can also change things on a small scale to implement big change and it, it can be us that was amazing and yeah. living living in the living in the u.s it's easier to recycle we have yes. that um that availability you have you're you're provided with two different trash bins trash and then recycle there's trash cans everywhere there's recycling cans everywhere so it's it's just a matter of taking the initiative and and taking that next step of second like thinking about it one like an additional time instead of throwing your trash out the window which i've exactly. seen happen numerous times here Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. just keeping it in your car, taking it to your home and throwing it, throwing it out in the trash and it, it being composted the proper ways. Yeah, exactly. And I've always read this quote that it, we don't have to be zero waste to zero all the time. It just is being aware, trying to make that effort. And I mean, the world needs a million people trying to be zero waste than a fraction of us and just giving up on it. So 
just looking at the packaging and thinking just two seconds there's a bar of soap this one has plastic packaging is there one that doesn't and in america you usually have that option so i mean you have the recycling facilities as you mentioned you have the fabric bags that you could put in your car we have the to-go containers that we can refill our own water stations and have our bottle we have alternatives but something that's very interesting in america that i've had a hard time finding in other places is you can specifically buy things specific products that are now refillable so companies will send you the refill so you don't have to buy the packaging of single use all over again mm. you buy a glass container so for instance cleaning products and you fill it with water and they send you tablets with no packaging and you have um razors they'll send you razors and then you send them back whatever you used mac does the same thing with product containers if you're using their makeup you can give them the container they'll give you something for free after you give five so june 5th is world environment day yes what what are your plans on that day well i know i have to post a lot of things on social media so okay. i think the first part of my morning i'll be dedicated to all the hashtags all the different photos and things um, and then once I could put down the social media and go to the side, I actually have an exhibition going up on the third, which I'm really excited about. And it is an installation made out of plastic bottles and lighters and Ergila pipes. So I'm going to be offering a talk in front of the installation on June 5th for anyone that's interested in the piece itself and things we can do as far as alternatives go and what actually happens to the lease afterwards. So that's I'm awesome. Really looking forward to that. Thank you. That's awesome. On a final note, what is one thing that you'd like our listeners to hear from you? And we have listeners all over the world. No pressure, right? No pressure. Final note, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I think that something that is very important is that we're able to recognize that anything we want changed. While everyone has a voice, we have something in our blood that tells us we are change and we are survivors and we are warriors. And with this type of vocab and constant uh, assuring of what's happening inside of our body, we can also implement that outside into the world and be the change that we want to see. You can be the role model by picking up the trash for another person and showing them where it is. You can be the role model by teaching the younger generations about what they need to do in order for the world to be better. It all starts with a voice and we have the loudest on earth. So use it. I hope this episode of the Assyrian podcast brought on a different perspective on the environment and on art. I thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening and share this episode with your family and friends.